0: Welcome to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. Hey, welcome. I'm so happy that you're here for episode two. Today we are interviewing Katia Gomez from Educate to Envision International. Katia is amazing. I met her A handful of years ago, at a nonprofit networking event, and I remember being blown away um, that she had this five hundred one c three up and running. She was my age, and at the time, I was trying to get my nonprofit up off of the ground. I was running programming, but was really overwhelmed by the whole five hundred one c three and IRS paperwork. And she offered. To um, give me some guidance. And, uh, she, you know, just left an impression on me about how she had Educate to Envision and it was successful. And so I was so excited to reconnect with her after all of these years. And Educate to Envision is doing amazing things in Honduras. You will hear from her. Um, a couple of key tech takeaways for me is again, this theme of giving the, power to the community to make changes. Um, You'll hear her talk about how in these high schools, they are giving the students the tools they need to make sustainable changes in their own communities to identify the issues and to identify the solutions. And I think that's really important to note. The other thing um, that was a big takeaway for me is just how much we take for granted education here in the United States. I currently have my oldest daughter in kindergarten here in a public elementary school. She's receiving an, an amazing education. And to be quite honest, we don't think much about it. You know, everyone her age is in school and is learning. And Listening to Katia speak about these children in Honduras and the obstacles they've had to go through in order to get an education. And specifically, she mentions a time when they're literally crying because they were unable to submit their homework. My goodness. Um, Can you imagine here in the United States crying because we didn't have a way of turning in our homework? I think, um, you know, just a big highlight from this interview is how much we take education for granted and how important it is to, to give you the tools and resources to not only lift yourself up, but lift your community up. So I hope that you enjoy listening to Katya as much as I did. And here she is. Awesome. Um, so just want to start out having you um, introduce yourself and your organization and maybe tell us like the mission of your organization.
1: Sure, sure. So I'm Katia Gomez. I'm the founder, executive director of Educate to Envision International. We work in the most remote parts of rural Honduras, bringing access to secondary school and youth leadership development.
0: Awesome. Um, and then, I want to hear your story of how you, you know, came about to create, educate to, um, educate to envision. Um, so, how did you first end up in Honduras? Well, first, where are you from?
1: Bay Area, born and okay. raised. Really, yeah. <laughs> um, how did I end up in Honduras? So, the story goes: um, I was a senior in college at the time and had been looking for some international experience. So I had just changed my major. Actually, I was a human bio major. I was on a path to become a physician assistant. Um, I was totally just uh, headed in the medical field entirely. And my junior year of college, I just kind of had this this shift of passion where I I knew that somewhere in me, international causes, global issues was was what really called to me. And it's not that I didn't care anymore about biology. That always fascinated me as a subject area, but I thought I could combine the two. So I I wanted to get more into global health, see if I could uh, kind of work the two angles. And so I was in my final year and luckily there was a group of students that were headed to Honduras to do water and sanitation work. And mm-hmm. it was for one of those alternative spring break programs that you've heard about, I'm sure. And so I signed myself up, never having in a million years thought of Honduras as a place I'd ever traveled to, or, you know, was not on my to-do list. Right. Know, yeah, I just, I didn't know a thing about this country, but it felt like a great opportunity. So, so um, that's kind of how the story just started to unfold was that spring break trip abroad. Um and what, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I was just gonna ask what your first impressions were of Honduras, like when you got there. Was it like love at first sight? Like I love this country, or um kind of what was going through your mind?
1: Well, it's funny, I actually had rediscovered this journal that I was keeping at the time. And uh, mind you, this was like now 10 years ago or so. And and I was rereading my thoughts actually immediately following that first trip to Honduras, and I was so captivated by how many young people there were. It was such a young population. Anywhere you went, there were just children, young adults. Um, And and that was something that really caught my eye and would eventually lead to making the connection between this huge population of young people and the lack of access to education for them. Um, But I was also just like enamored with uh, every bird of every kind, butterflies of every color, just the natural beauty of Honduras. was just like, it was so captivating. And the people themselves, the local staff that were um, working with the college students that had arrived to volunteer were just so gracious, so kind. Um, and I was so happy to be able to practice my Spanish because at the time I was still not so great. And I was so-
0: gonna ask, how was your Spanish originally going in? <laughs>
1: Not amazing. Um, and also it's you're going into a new country where that has its own dialect, its own slang, its own, you know, and and so um I had been mainly used to Mexican Spanish. And so it was it was just it was fun though, because I hadn't been immersed in so long in in just being able to be kind of a translator for our group, even though I wasn't amazing, but I was able to really um get myself out there and and yeah, so so just reading back on my journal, I clearly was hooked from the get-go and was uh, would inevitably find myself making Honduras my second home.
0: Love it. And kind of walk us through the journey of you go on this college week long spring break trip to work on water sanitation. Um, how does that turn into you founding a nonprofit focused on Honduras? Well,
1: I think it was twofold. I think there were kind of two kind of self-discovery moments there. Um, and, and one of them was really the trip itself and how it was structured. And it, it's not to, to, you know, knock uh, volunteer trips at all, because it clearly changed my life. But it was really being able to go there, you know, with the intention to try and make an impact in a week, and and try and improve lives within that short period of time and so we were there and i was with my classmates and we were building what's called a pila which is essentially the water structure where families can store water it's built of bricks you can also wash your clothes dishes it's kind of your outdoor water storage Uh, and and so we were there and we were helping mix cement and we were helping lay the bricks and we were doing all of these things and um and, and what I noticed were that all of the young kids that were so just, you know, excited to see you know, the visitors and who are these people who've never, you know. Never, <laughs> right. Uh, it was just an odd experience for them, I'm sure, but they were just excited at the same time. But what I, I kind of captured in that moment was the dynamic between the volunteers and those that were being helped and that it was sort of this, this, um, this dichotomy between you know, we want to create empowerment in the communities. And what it felt like at the moment was that these young people were actually more of the passive bystanders that were kind of, you know, receiving a lot of the help, and were not able to actually participate themselves. And it was, mm-hmm. it for me, it was really sort of You know what is the long-term impact that we are having here aside from the personal benefit to ourselves you know of course all of us are going to run back home and add this to our resume and add this to our grad school applications and and it's going to be a great benefit for us but what was the real kind of lasting impact that that's that was remained in the community once we all went home back to our regular lives and for me that was a uh, yeah, a big turning point. I, I thought that there has to be another way where, you know, we can still help because help is clearly needed, but it's done in a way that it's not um, reinforcing the cycle of handouts that Honduras has traditionally really been um, been known for. Because it's it's not. I tell people, you know, Honduras, yes, you know, it's, it's clearly one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, and it, it's not that they lack aid or or helping hands it's it's really the the way that we go about offering that help and whether or not it's perpetuating that that dependency or whether it's actually you know elevating you know the the agency of the the people who live there to actually be able to to create impact on their own and so totally. i thought e2e could do something a bit different in that sense and and so that was kind of that was sort of the 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 one um, the, the first uh, experience I would say that that opened my eyes to wanting to create a nonprofit that could do things a bit differently as far as the power dynamics um, in 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 um, in lower income countries. And the second was really just going about conducting my little side interviews when we, when we weren't building um, PILAS or okay. or teaching hand washing. It was really <laughs> just. Uh, being able to talk to the kids and the parents around me and to essentially find out that no one has access to secondary school. Um, Mm -hmm. That was also for me, just an incredible moment to know that we as college students had um, very naturally just progressed from middle school to middle school, from middle school to high school without blinking an eye, right? It was just our natural way of being. We just like we just uh flow, uh we were flowing through this uh, natural current of just going through all of our education cycles totally. for them, it was entirely the opposite, so recognition of privilege again and and this this huge opportunity to get that that I wanted to see if I could close. Um,
0: I love that, and I think what you mentioned too is so important about um I mean, so many of us have gone on these international development trips and they're typically a week long you go in you leave and i agree like a lot of times the impact is on the people traveling so much more than the people whose community is being served and so i think that's really important to note. um okay so you get home from the spring break trip and you've made these you know aha moments light bulb moments um what's the first step that you take like when you get back home is it um, instantaneous or did it take you a while? I'm curious kind of what that process was like.
1: Yeah, so I I knew I wanted to go to grad school. Um, so I I decided rather than, than to go immediately after finishing undergrad, I was going to take a year off. Um, and that year off became just the entire formation, uh, the evolution of E2E from bake sales to our first actual a legitimate grant to to actually forming the NGO as a legal entity. So initially, I mean, you can imagine our board of directors, when I found out, you know, that one, in order to start a nonprofit, you need one of these things called a board of directors. And so, <laughs>
0: right. Yes. Uh,
1: so it, it became literally my classmates, those who had gone to Honduras with me, those who had it, who were just my friends and heard. Oh, about interesting. Um, just to have the name, right, just so we can actually uh, fill in our, our documents. Um, but at the same time, they were there to help fundraise at these weekly bake sales that we would hold in front of my old primary school. Um, and that would be essentially the first revenue E2E would ever have would be through these bake sales of donated baked goods that a lot of our family friends would come in and, and contribute with. And it essentially also started with um, the sponsorship of one girl. So before E2E even became a 501c3, the girl that I had met on that first trip to Honduras, um, she would become really for me the, like the catalyst for E2E because she had, I learned later, she was 13 years old at the time that I met her and she had dropped out of school at, I believe third or fourth grade. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so for me, I wanted to know just at the time, like just to help this one girl, what would it take? And so I got in touch with the volunteer coordinators and they were able to help me out by keeping in touch with her even after I had come back to California. And they had let me know, you know, they said, we don't know how or why you would have picked her, but it turns out, you know, this is a girl who really does, um, does have an extreme needs. She's an orphan. Her parents Mm. were, um, were killed and, and, and when she was younger. And so she has you know, just also a lot of trauma around this. And she's been working for her grandmother, selling tortillas. So this whole backstory that at the time when I had decided to sponsor her, I knew nothing about, of course, because she was you know very reserved, very shy, but also just very, very kind. And so I, I didn't know much about her life at the time. So it was it was it was kind of, yeah, it was incredible to just hear this after the fact and to be able to support her. And she was back in school after I had, you know, um, sent over some funds to have her get back in school with school supplies and amazing. And so, so she was really the first, the first uh, e2e unofficial student, I guess you could say. Um, I love it. So that was kind of the progress, and I, I l- checked out books in the library. Literally, I'm I'm almost positive there was a nonprofit for dummies that that's out there, and 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 I've read
0: it. Yes, actually, I'm familiar. <laughs> yes, so
1: that, that was like my bible, um, and a bunch of other great books that are more on the legal side of things, but you need to actually file with the IRS, Um, and lived in either the library reading those books, or lived on my computer in a coffee shop trying to figure out how to, how to start fundraising, and, and, and yeah, so that was, that was my whole pre-grad school year.
0: Okay, your gap year. Yes. Nice, okay, so you go, so you go home, you contact that organization about the girl, you start sending her funds, and I'm curious too, so what was keeping her from returning to school was lack of of funds it sounds like exactly. um okay so your bake sales were able to send her back to school um and then kind of what happens is it from there that you decide okay I might have something here I want to start a 501c3 or um kind of what was the next step after after her
1: Yeah, it was um, it was seeing the impact that it had on 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 her when they sent me back photos of her in her uniform in her backpack and she was actually you know she was she and she had a big smile on her face and 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 she was in school and that's what it took and it was it was it was a very you know insignificant amount of uh, of money that it would take to actually get her back in um, so that her grandma would feel comfortable enough you know that she doesn't have to have a financial burden and that she's able to send her granddaughter to school um and it was yeah it was really just that realization that there's half there has to be you know hundreds if not thousands of, upon thousands of other girls just like her um that are that whose story is just not being told who you know I will never personally meet um, right and it's just that and so it made sense you know that ETE could be filling a gap that um, was becoming more and more apparent that was not being filled by anyone whether it's government or other nonprofits, that there was really this elephant in the room you could say um that you know everyone was focused on water sanitation which is fantastic or people were focusing on other things like building homes or right but it felt like nobody was really even talking about secondary school access um which is, you know, for half of the population who lives in rural Honduras, this is this is such a critical time in someone's life, in their adolescent life, where they're trying to decide what to do with the rest of their lives. Um, and if there's nothing beyond primary school, it's just you're missing out on, on an entire generation that could contribute to the country, but it's going unaddressed. So that was yeah. for me a challenge that I just got excited about. I really wanted to. Didn't know how yet, but I, I knew there was something. I was at that time just I, at that from that moment on, just totally committed.
0: I love it. And at what point did you go back to Honduras? Like, what was your second time back like?
1: Yeah, I so I was hooked at that point, right? Because I had <laughs> had that experience with um, my first uh, E2E student. So I actually went back as an alumna the the following year. I went back having already graduated, but I asked, can you make an exception? Take me again. Um, <laughs> and they did, and it was fine. And, and so we went to um, a second community, which would end up being the flagship community where we would start our first school. Oh, awesome. Officially. And, and yeah, so different community, but exactly the similar, similar circumstances for the children there. And that was, um, yeah, that was the time where I had already known, I brought my notebook, and I already knew the questions I wanted to ask everyone. At this point, it was, you know, had my detective hat on, and I knew exactly what I wanted to figure out um, to really kind of validate, you know, was my hypothesis true? Was it true that secondary school access really was out of reach for the majority of the population? And that second trip just hands down confirmed it, um, when I had asked the director of the school, we sat on a bench together outside during lunch. And I had said, you know, it's great. Like all these primary school you know, little ones are running around and they're in their little uniforms. And I said, well, what about, um, I'd love to talk to someone from like secondary school. Like if I could talk to someone from there, I'd love to just write down some notes. And she just plainly said, there's there's nobody for you to interview. Mm. You know, no, nobody ever goes to secondary school here. Nobody has ever and nobody you know, likely will.
0: Was there a secondary school that, or like, was it due to lack of funds or due to the fact that there was no secondary school?
1: There was no secondary school that was accessible. So there's there was a secondary school in the nearest town, um, but what that would require is about four hours round trip walking. Because at that wow. time, yeah, the at the time there was no public transportation. Now today there are uh, there are pu- buses. Owned by someone in the community, or little you know, tuk-tuk that will <laughs> take students. But at the time, there was no public transportation, and the roads were just in terrible condition. So students would have to walk, and on top of that, it was just incredibly expensive—the the tuition and everything involved. So for that reason, it was just financially um, and logistically impossible um, for students to go to school. So, yeah. So so was that really that second trip also that just kind of put the nail, you know, in the? Uh, I, I, it was it was just the defining, the defining moment, definitely.
0: And I know you um, did open up a secondary school. So it was in that community where you visited on your second trip.
1: Yes, that would be the flagship school that we started, um, community of Pajadillos in central Honduras. Um, And we would use that model um, year after year of building in youth leadership into the secondary school curriculum and really having this uh, incredible experience of watching youth prosper and and changing that um, that power dynamic that I talked about in that volunteer trip, really seeing that totally shift and having the students identify the needs in the, in the, in the community and having that, that design projects. And that would be, that would trickle on to all the other schools that we would start later on.
0: I'm curious too. So what's the process of starting a secondary school in a country um, where you don't live? Um, I would love to just like kind of hear about how you go about even doing that?
1: Well, you need an amazing team. You need a team yeah. that is is more knowledgeable than you are um, and that is just really committed to going to the, the most remote parts of the country. I think that's that's key. I can tell you that the team, the team that we have working for us in Honduras, they're some of the most, you know, just resilient people because they are willing to get you know, behind the wheel of a, a pickup truck and drive into the mountains. You know, for hours to a place with no signal, to a place where you know no one else is is really working or going at all. Right. Uh, it's a lot of lot of physical, you know, sacrifice um, and time sacrifice. So the team, you know, when we go into these new communities, it's 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 truly all the credit goes to them for being able to 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 dedicate their, you know, their career, their life to to helping us find these forgotten places, and so, so yes, I have to put a lot of all all credit on them. And and so what we do is we're we're able to go to a community, and sometimes it's word of mouth, sometimes it's it's um, parents of of nearby communities where we've already started schools say, hey, our community doesn't have a secondary school, our kids aren't studying after primary school, we would love to have that, so it all starts with really building that trust, building that rapport with the community to to have them really take the reins. And they're the ones who decide who's going to be the teacher. They're they're the ones who decides um, what the schedule of the school will be like. So they really have entire ownership. And we're there to really provide support with this 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 uh, opportunity to have their students not only learn literacy and the basic skills they need to function in society that school is intended for but also having their students transform into these community leaders that I think is 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 the critical differentiator and it's 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 having the community also be able to embrace that, right? Because it's it's an odd thing at first to think of your children as these big change makers, um, right? You know, it's kind of it's it takes a bit of a a mind shift to be able to to go into a community and and say, you know, your your kids are gonna are gonna transform your communities. It's gonna, you know, it's, it's usually something reserved for much older people um, or NGOs, but to say, you know, the youth from your community are going to improve lives here. Um, and when that is embraced, then that's really where the change starts to happen. And that's where the school comes to life.
0: I'm curious, have you ever had pushback from the parents? Cause I imagine, you know, thinking about rural communities that these like high school age, children are probably doing a lot of the work at home or, you know, on the farm or what have you. Like, have, have you ever faced pushback from the parents? Like, no, we need them here. We don't want them going to school.
1: Yeah, well, for, for school itself, yeah. I mean, um, the good thing about the way that the school schedule in Honduras and Latin America works, you know, it's February to November. And for many of the communities that we work in, they're coffee growing communities. And the coffee growing season, is usually in that vacation period from oh, about November to February. That's when everyone is, we, we know that everyone is kind of, you know, they're, they're not reachable at that point. At that point, the whole family is working in the coffee fields hmm. because that's their one and only source of income for the whole year. Um sorry. Um, so. So that is is a benefit on our end, you know, that we're able to say, okay, you know, summer vacation is reserved for our students um, to contribute to their families and to spend that helping in the coffee fields. Um, Other times, in most cases, yes, there is support across the board because this is actually, communities have requested us to to come to the community, to start Mm -hmm. secondary schools, but you'll always have instances, and particularly for girls, where you will have elders in the community who, see no reason no real justification for girls to study because they see that the outcome the outcome will always be the same that girls will end up in the, in the household confined to the household you know as the as a mother as a wife <laughs> um, and so we have had girls tell us in their own words that you know they tell us we're only good for this we're only good for Cleaning, we're only good for um, taking care of children. So, if that's where we'll inevitably end up, then why to waste time learning in the classroom? It just doesn't make sense. Um, so, we do have some instances of that. But, other cases, we have instances where most of our students who are enrolled are girls, where over 70% of the kids enrolled are girls, oh, and others awesome. are actively advocating for it. So, it's really, it, it, it's, it depends on, on each community, sort of how that culture has arisen. Um, but, but luckily that those are, are fewer instances. Um, good. Yes.
0: Um, so it sounds like the community requests the school, um, and they're really the ones staffing it and all of that. So really E2E is coming in and, um, funding, is that right? Or you funding the school and kind of giving the guidance of how to go about starting it?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we focus a lot on, um, our curriculum is, is a distance learning type of curriculum, or it's structured in a way where it's flexible for the community, because we're, we just as you mentioned, Lizzie, it's, it's the, the families and agriculture are, are inseparable, and so the children are raised, helping their families, whether it's coffee or not, any type of um, Any type of work involved in the field requires the whole family effort, Um, so this type of curriculum that we bring does make it flexible, so the Community decides what days of the week school will happen. Mm. Um, And so that gives them something that public schools can't which is you know this flexibility to to be able to still support themselves financially by having the help of everyone in the family, but also. Giving space for the kids to go to school so we help with the scholarships for for um, students that are incredibly low income to be able to purchase the books and and we also help with the teacher training so because the the community is selecting who the teacher will be in not in every situation will the teacher be someone with a degree that is from the university right it can sometimes just be someone who's qualified and has the the will to actually, you know, commit themselves to helping with the school. So we'll take them under our wing and we provide um, teacher training throughout the year for all of our teachers. Um, And and so that's an additional benefit that we offer everyone. In addition to the leadership training that is every single year from the time they step into seventh grade, they're learning how to, to draw out their community, to look at the Essentially the, the SWOT analysis, right? So they're looking at the strengths, the weaknesses, everything of their community. Oh, interesting. To, to um, yeah, it's really kind of passing on all this knowledge we as nonprofits have who work in international development, right? So when we go in as these technical experts, we're the ones who are assessing the needs, we're doing the household interviews, we are, you know, putting everything into Excel, analyzing this data, and then coming up with a project, evaluating it after. But now these are all skills that can easily be passed on, easily right. taught to the actual community, um, and so that's what we do with our youth.
0: Oh, I love that, and that's the leadership program that you guys have—is what you're explaining. Exactly. I'm curious. I'd love to hear like what you feel like your biggest success story is. Like something that happened, and you're like, "We're we're doing it. We're making impact."
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, the, there there are so many different instances where I've had a wow moment of just, you know, like we've done it. Like E2E is actually making a real difference. And I think, I mean, in general, every graduation that I've gone to, um, where it's been the very first secondary school graduation in the history of the community, wow. for me, that's like always just like a an incredible sense of just, well, gratitude for being able to do this as my job <laughs> and for right. being able to, to have brought, been in a situation where people believe enough in our cause that we could make this happen for the community. Um, and just to see the parents and everyone who attends that event that is just literally making history, it's always something that is, is, is incredible and reminds me of why I do this in the first place. Um, but I, I think, if I had to choose a student, it would probably be um, Ariel, one of our, our incredible uh, shining s- stars. He was a seventh grader. I met him as a, a fourth grader. I've known since he was a baby, basically. Aww. And he is now the first university graduate in his entire community. Um, wow. and one of the very few in his entire municipality who've ever gone to university. And this guy, uh, this young man uh, has, <laughs> Become our very top senior leader. He travels around the country replicating our youth leadership model. And he does it better than I ever could, than a lot of our other staff. He has this just like a lab, just eloquent, just like profound way of his, his presence. Everything is just like what an E2E student we believe can be. He's like what we aspire everyone to, to be, and even him when he was a student led his group of classmates to eventually reaching 90% of all elderly households had clean water because of the initiatives of the students um, in the community. And yeah, and and it was a goal that they set out for themselves because they saw that the elderly were some of the most um, vulnerable in the community. And and there's just kind of a disintegration of, of the family unit in a lot of these rural communities where the elderly are are left isolated without any support really. And so they wanted to bring clean water to, to the grandmothers and the grandfathers um, who were living alone and, and he led that effort. Um, and so we're, he, he, we always use him as just, you know, he, he's, he's our, the, the role model for even our team. It's just, he, um, so we know all of our students can, can, can also follow him in his footsteps.
0: Well, I love that he like went to university and came back and is now working for E2E. Like, that's awesome. Obviously, like it had a huge impact on his life for him to want to now give back to others. And I love that. Um, Can you uh, describe your, I saw you have an innovation hub. I would love for you to like kind of describe what that is and what you guys are doing there.
1: Yeah. So the NIDO, so NIDO is the name of the Innovation Hub. Um, It stands for NEST in in English. And so the NIDO really came about because there was no meeting space for our leaders. There was no kind of headquarters where all of our youth leaders could be able to interact. And so we we were in our youth leadership program and all of our various communities, you know students were becoming were starting to transform into leaders and they were working on all these projects but they weren't connected with each other yet there wasn't really a mm-hmm. network for them to tap into where they could say oh you know what we're doing here solving food insecurity my my peers in this community are doing the same thing why don't we work together or talk to each other there was no real meeting space or or any kind of connection for them to do that so the need though we thought you know it was intended for for this to serve as kind of an incubator for for these leaders who had been trained in their own communities but could come together in a single space to really swap stories and strengthen these bonds between rural youth who are typically so isolated right so it, it's uh, right. it's um yeah it's such a life of isolation where you rarely ever leave your community if um, maybe for two holiday trips per year, or maybe just to buy something at the local town and then you immediately go back. And so it was allowing them to see a world beyond the borders of their community and to see what other youth were doing to inspire them. So it was it was with built with that in mind. Um, and then it began to expand to actually create the first technology access point for these rural youth who were able to, for the first time, have internet access have computer access be able to actually have connectivity you know even beyond just person to person but connectivity worldwide wow. um, and it would become really the only place in the whole region municipality for them to to have access to that otherwise you know they would never have even touched a computer essentially or been able to understand what an online course you know it, is, especially that would come in handy during the pandemic. It would be kind of our, it would become the pandemic classroom. It would be, it would be the space where students could come and access online learning because in their own communities there, there just is no signal. There's no ability to, to sign on to any, you know, Zoom is not an option um, in their own communities, but in the need though, that, that was possible. Um, so it served many different purposes, but really it was born to provide that, that um, space for, for connection.
0: It's crazy. I feel like in 2022 we just take for granted like Wi-Fi and computers and cell phones. Or we're just like, I mean, certainly in the United States we're just like always connected, over connected, even. So um, to think that there's places not like that, um, yeah, interesting. And then um, I'm curious, are all of the schools? Well, first of all, how many schools do you have currently?
1: This year we expanded, so we have 15, we expanded uh, three three additional schools this year.
0: That's awesome. And are they all in the same region of Honduras? Like same area? Uh,
1: They, initially in the early days we were concentrated in in Central, um, but today we actually have schools in both the Central, Western, Eastern, and Southern parts of Honduras. So we're, we're just missing the Northern part now.
0: Wow, that's awesome. Um, And you just briefly mentioned, um, you know, COVID and the pandemic. I'm curious how that affected, you know, your programming and operations.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, our students, just like all students in the world, had to learn how to adapt, and and it was especially difficult just for the reasons that you mentioned that, you know, when you're talking about a transition to online learning, it's not so much as just, okay, you know, I need to hop on my computer and stay home and just uh, log on to my courses. For students in Honduras or in our communities, they in order to even access a class at all um, or hear a lecture, they had to congregate in the house of someone in the community who had some level of access who had like maybe two bars. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are very few homes that had, were, were positioned someplace in the community on a hill or wherever it may be <laughs> that, was, that was ideal to, you know, to having signal and or stand by a certain tree in the community. And that's where the signal was. Um, So it was very, very hard um, to see them so kind of, you know, demotivated and and frustrated because it was, um, it was incredibly hard for them. They want to do well in class. And they were feeling just overwhelmed that they could not do as well as they would like, because they just clearly couldn't attend class. And they couldn't submit, um, exams and homework via email. It just wasn't it, So they felt like they were falling behind. And, and so we, we did our best to make those trips to the Nevo as frequently as possible so that they were able to, to access internet and actually be able to, to complete the, the school year. But it was, it was hard for them. They would tell us, you know, they said, you know, we were crying last night because we couldn't submit, yeah. you know, our, our homework because it just, we didn't have signal. And, um, and yeah, I mean, they, they take their, they take their education so seriously and it was, it was a tough year, but, you know, on our end in, in the U S you know, where all the fundraising really happens. It was a, it was a blow to us as well, because we had um, in 2016 started a social enterprise, um, Adelante Coffee. That's and yeah, and it was it was fantastic to be able to work more closely with the parents of the students who are coffee growers, and be able to purchase coffee directly from them, and export it here to the U.S., where we were selling um, significant amount of coffee um, to some of the big tech companies here in the Bay Area as a oh, way That's awesome.
0: That.
1: Yes, it was it was um, one of the most kind of sustainable sources of, of of funding that we were able to come up with, and it was it was an amazing just journey, just even personally for myself to learn about the ins and outs of, of coffee, the supply chain, everything that goes into it. Um, and so we were, it was incredibly successful and it was, it was a fantastic way to fund our, our programming. And then when the pandemic hit and work from home became across the board, the norm, we unfortunately lost, um, um, essentially all of our clients that mm. we had. And so that was for us, uh, at least as an internally as an organization, it was, it was the result of the pandemic, unfortunately. And so we had to uh, try and pivot, recoup what we lost in other ways. Um, and yeah, so that was unfortunate, but we're slowly trying to get back to-, to Are you still to- selling coffee? We sell coffee on our website um, oh, nice. offices, not just yet, you know, because still people are figuring out what's, what the future of work is gonna look like right, um, so we'll we'll see
0: oh, um, I'm curious too, kind of like looking into the future, do you have like any uh, um upcoming projects that you're excited about or like what you're most excited about when you think of like e two e in the next um couple of years?
1: yeah, yeah, I mean i for for e two e we've we've been thinking a lot about what growth looks like um what it means to continue replicating the success that our youth leaders have had, the uh, the impact that they've created in their communities. And so for us, we really wanna continue amplifying their voices. Um, we think rural youth still need to, to continue to, to connect with one another, to continue to build this large partnership um, that, that we're actually working with an organization based in Guatemala and El Salvador. Okay. Um, to even connect youth leaders across borders within the Northern Triangle, oh, um, cool. and yeah, and, and so I think that there's so much power to that, and and you know these are voices that have have always been you know either ignored or forgotten about, and living in communities that have been entirely um, kind of abandoned essentially from um, other aid groups or organ or government. So it's en- taking the youth from these really forgotten places and giving them a platform. Um, as change makers in their own right, you know, and so I'm excited about being able to connect across borders, Um, even within Honduras, we're we're looking at uh, expanding our youth leadership program to bring to other existing schools, so other schools can benefit, even non-E2E schools can benefit. from from this training that their own students can apply in their communities and so it's really that expansion that network effect that that i'm really excited about um, because we've seen just the power of what it can do whether it's bringing clean water to homes whether it's um tackling uh food insecurity whatever it might be we think that youth especially this this age level the secondary school group is they're really the vehicle for bringing about this wider change um, in fighting rural poverty so there's a lot of the yeah, excitement around that
0: I love the model that you guys are using, too, because, you know, what works or, you know, what works in one town doesn't necessarily work in the other or like one problem isn't necessarily the problem in the other. So I love that model of like having the youth identify in their own community and coming up with the solutions. It's just really great. Um, I'm curious how you like logistically manage, you know, being, you um, you know, head of E2E, living in the Bay Area, are you splitting your time between the two countries, or, you know, how do you do that logistically?
1: Yeah, well, before the pandemic, I was going to Honduras um, about five times a year, um, wow. and yeah, and, and a
0: lot of stamps in the passport,
1: <laughs> oh, like my passport, is just, you just scroll through it, it's like Honduras, just, just non-stop pages of Honduras, um, and <laughs> And during grad school, obviously it was less, um, but but after that it, w- it became really frequent trips um, to meet up with the team, and especially when we're inaugurating new schools or assessing new school sites. Um, recently though, We've been able to luckily grow our in-country staff um, since the pandemic days. And so that's allowed me to be able to focus more here in the US on fundraising um, and giving our team kind of full reign over the programmatic side of things and the expansion of new schools. Um, so, so the virtual world has, has worked well in, in that regard. And WhatsApp is just, you know, it's <laughs> it's just like a, a godsend. It's, it's the way that. We stay connected, you know, 24/7. My team and I, um, and it's it's yeah. So so without that, I think it'd be much difficult, uh, logistically very very hard to accomplish uh, running an organization from here. But um, but yeah, again, it just comes back to having a, a fantastic in-country team that I trust and that's you know very confident, very capable um, of handling things without me needing to be there uh, physically. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's like the true sign of success was like you you know have a team like you know in country that you can can trust and moving things forward. Um, well, I would love for you to just have the opportunity to let listeners know how they can help E 2 E and um, if you know they're interested, what kind of help you guys are looking for.
1: Yeah, no, thanks, Lizzie. I um, you know we're we're always looking for or financial support to continue to, to help uh, um, grow our schools, to continue to help funding a lot of the community projects that the students are leading as well. Um, as far as volunteering goes, you know, there are great virtual opportunities, you know, for you to bring your skill sets and help our students who are you know, looking for skills to improve their projects, whether you're an engineer or a teacher or um, any, any kind of skill set that you bring to the table that you think could be useful for our students. Um, that's the beauty of having our, our youth center, our NEVO, um, is that we can connect virtually our students to volunteers anywhere in the world.
0: That's
1: awesome. um, so yeah, so we'd love, you know, to have anyone who's interested or bring their company on board and, and want to connect with our students and see what they're doing um, as change makers. Um, we're, we're happy to do that. So appreciate, awesome. the yeah, yeah.
0: And, um, I'll put this in the show notes, but, uh, where, pe- where can people find you?
1: Yeah. So our website, educate to envision.org. Um, we're also on Facebook and Instagram so they can find us there and LinkedIn as well. Um, yeah.
0: Awesome. Okay. This is the fun part. This is the end, but, um, just like a little get to know you rapid fire questions. If you are ready.
1: I think so. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> no pressure. Um, your favorite place in the world, and be specific as possible.
1: Oh, as specific as possible, man. Um, well, I I think Hond- Honduras is already the obvious, uh, right? Winner. Um, but uh, if I, if I had to sneak in a place, it's it's not specific. Um, but maybe okay we'll be specific we'll do santa cruz uh we'll we'll say right now just for the sheer fact of being local and the pandemic has kind of has stopped us from uh, traveling as much but i would say santa cruz because of the surfing i that, that's my my go-to place when i need a break from work is i need to hop in my wetsuit get in the ocean and and sit and wait for waves so santa cruz is that. a great place to do that
0: <laughs> does Honduras have good surfing i have no idea
1: you know, it, unfortunately, the winds don't don't reach uh, Honduras, and it's uh, it's known for excellent scuba diving, but it's not a, a not a surfing place. You'd have to go to Salvador or Nicaragua for that.
0: Got it. Um, okay, next question. Last book that you read?
1: Oh man, um, I have been reading a lot of leadership uh, focused books that have been recommended to me. Right. Nice. Um, And it's there, oh, man, I need to get back to you on the title, Lizzie, but it's about um, good intentions. And, you know, I think a lot of us in the nonprofit space, you know, when we approach donors or whoever it may be, you know, it's always kind of with this transactional type of relationship, right? So it's going into relationships more with how can I help you as well? And it's creating good intentions around um, not just what do I expect from this outcome? what do I expect from this tri- this discussion that we're having you know what will I gain from it and, and it's really flipping it on its head and it's a hard thing to do because nonprofit mo- nonprofit directors are always in a, uh, a scarcity mindset yes. where we're always <laughs> just like what, how can I what can I gain from this and what can I but instead it's just you know letting that kind of just letting that natural instinct sort of just bury that and just be able to come you know more um, more with the mindset of how can I also help you you know whether or not I get anything from it and so when I figure out the title I'll let you know but that's mainly the premise of, of, of the book
0: I love that yeah that's important yeah let us know the title I can put it up on our Instagram um and then alternatively what show are you currently watching
1: you know i unfortunately have got hooked to all these like fraud themed shows you know the inventing anna's and the uh the dropout yes um, i think same. right yeah the, um and there's there's i think there's a couple others um that i just uh i think are are fascinating just to look at in the inside the mind of someone who's like who's uh just been complicit in this huge like cover up and like all the things that go into it um, just like sustain this big lie and so I unfortunately am yes one of those who is totally riding that uh, train right now
0: I'm right there with you I uh, finished inventing and I'm on the dropout it's interesting because it's like a part of me admires them and being like so self-starting and then also just very frightened by them too (laughs) it's like a weird mix
1: (laughs) no I hear I've heard the same comments from friends as well like there's this entrepreneurial like right power behind it but it's also you know it's it's what do you use it for good or for evil or what do you you know it's
0: exactly totally yeah (laughs) um well, and this one will apply well to you. Um, how do you take your coffee?
1: Oh, geez. Okay. I have to confess, when I started the coffee company, I didn't even drink coffee. I literally <laughs> didn't. I drank tea or, or chai lattes or anything but. Um, so when I started the coffee company, I learned that maybe I was just drinking really crappy coffee and that's why I didn't like it. So um I will have my coffee now I used to have it black now I'll have it with a little bit of this like coconut cream oh, yummy. Um, uh, creamer and I'll mix it up sometimes which I try to not do too much because I know it you know all my barista friends and everyone who's taught me about coffee would look at me and just in, in in disappointment so I try not to do too much
0: how do they drink it in Honduras is it like smaller portions like smaller in- cups
1: it's yeah, well, it's black coffee with more sugar than you can ever imagine.
0: right. Yeah.
1: And, I mean, it's it's an overload, but it's it's yeah, no cream, just like cups of cups of sugar. Um, and that's that's your coffee. Yeah. That keeps that you sounds away.
0: familiar to um, La- other Latin American countries I visited. Uh, okay, last one, favorite quote.
1: Ooh, if you can think of one. Okay. Okay, yes, um, I would say this applies to kind of E2E's uh, philosophy around aid. Um, so it's Lao Tzu, and he says that the best leaders, when all are, is said and done, when their work is complete, in the end, the people will say, we did it ourselves. And I think for me, that's, that's just exactly goes back to day one on that volunteer trip is what I wanted to change about that experience. Um,
0: I love that. That sounds exactly like what you guys are doing. So that
1: applies. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying, you know, it's a daily <laughs> practice. Yeah.
0: I love it. Well, thank you so much, Katya. It was so great speaking with you and um, I appreciate you coming on.
1: Thanks, Lizzie. No, I really appreciate you having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. I would love if you would follow or subscribe our podcast or would you leave a rating or review? Five stars is our favorite. That would help others find us and we'd really appreciate it. If you're active on social media, please follow us at Waves of Change podcast on Instagram. Even more, if you would share this episode on your stories, that would be wonderful. If you have suggestions or want to recommend an organization I should interview, email us at wavesofchangepod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Thank you. I'll see you next time.